Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Sarah Utoff, and tonight we're doing one of our Travel Times episodes where we look at interesting things that people do and places that they go on their vacation. I do want to just give a heads up for people who uh, are listening to our other episodes as well. Uh, there's going to be a, a roving reporter report from DeSmet. I don't have it scheduled yet because it kind of depends how things go in DeSmet, but look for that the weekend of the 24th and the 25th. And then on July 28th, I am going to have Pam Stover on talking about the history of music in one-room schools. So I'm really looking forward to that. But tonight, we're going to talk to one of my best friends, Ann Cheka, who is actually a Civil War reenactor, and I'm so glad that she was willing to do this for us tonight. So welcome, Ann. Well, thank you, Sarah. So do you want to tell them just a little bit about uh, what you do and where you're from and all that good stuff? Oh, sure. I'm actually uh, the program coordinator at Usher's Ferry Historic Village in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which basically is kind of a jack-of-all-trades sort of job. So it's it's essentially the curator position without all the, you know, the laurels, credit, tag. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Anne is being a little modest there. I think she helps keep it running. I don't know what they'd do without Anne. <laughs> Some days I some days I'd like to find out, but you know we all we all make we all make do. It's been a rough couple of years, but we've we've actually reaped the benefits of our our work. So we have the flood of 2008. If people hadn't heard of, heard about how Usher's Ferry was hit with that, but we had 36 exhibit buildings and 34 of them flooded. So if you want to talk about uh, hard work, stress, and hair pulling, that's probably been our last three years. <laughs> And they have done a marvelous job, and they're pretty much, uh, well, they're getting close to being fully operational again, right? Yeah, actually, the site is fully operational. This is the first summer that we're back that we are, what I would say, fully operational. We can have weddings, and we can have rentals, and all of our special events are back. We have food vendors, and this, you can go back into the saloon and buy sarsaparilla and cream soda and root beer like you used to, and, and go into the general store and and all of the, you know, a lot of the sea demonstrations in the buildings again. There's a few things that aren't quite finished. we got to get our printing presses back up and running and our blacksmith shop fixed and a few things like that. But by and large, it's 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 pretty much what it should be. Well, that is just fantastic to hear because Usher's Ferry is really a great place. And I'm sure our listeners have heard me talk about it before because uh, I, I worked there uh, what six years, seven years, something oh, like that? Oh yeah, yeah, something like that. Way back in the day, we all kind of lose track. I don't even bother to count how many I work there now. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that isn't really why we brought you on tonight. Tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, your hobby, which is Civil War reenacting. Yes, and yes. 
Civil, civil war reenacting. I, I, it's one of those things I fell into purely by accident. And actually, um, I got into it because of Usher's Ferry. Because one of my first, I think it was probably my first or second, I think it was my first year full-time on staff. We um, had the Civil War event at Usher's Ferry. They'd been doing it a year or two, and I really didn't know much about it. But I... Uh, I being that I own horses and, and have my own horses, I was told, oh, we've got these cavalry guys coming to do a horse demonstration for the Civil War event and make sure they have everything they need. And so I went to see what all it was they needed and ended up getting kidnapped into the cavalry, as I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of peop- of uh, women who do sort of female camp people around it. Was there some biting thing other than just liking the horses that made you want to portray a male soldier? Um, you know, I really never, honestly, I never gave a lot of thought as to the gender or the part I was playing. Um, my particular interest was purely based upon the horses. This was a, um, a great experience for my horses to train them and to expose them to um, the guns and the cannons and the and the craziness alike. I'm a firm believer when I'm working with my horses in exposing them to as many different difficult scenarios and situations as I can because it makes them a better trained uh, animal. And it's in, and it's horses get bored too. So really, I wanted to do this purely because I was fascinated by um, how the horses, you know served in the military, how um, they used horses in war, and it was it was a way to both, you know, combine my love for history with, you know, my love for horses. I never really gave much thought to whether I was playing a female role or a male role. Uh, it was just if you went out on the field and took the field as a soldier with your horse, then you got to shoot guns off your horse, you got to swing a saber, you got to do, you know military cavalry drill and all of that. If I had been doing a civilian impression with my horses, which I have done that as well, I would have been more limited doing maybe only driving or carriage impressions or side saddle. Well, that certainly does sound a lot more creative from the horse's point of view, and I could certainly see how, how that would attract you to doing it. Now, you belong to a particular unit, right? Right. Um our, our regular unit is the 1st Wisconsin Volunteer Cavalry Company C, and um, the members are from a variety of places. And back in the day, we used to be spread as far as uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, and Iowa. Um, now our members are mostly located in Wisconsin and Iowa. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the, the primary unit we do. And then occasionally we, we help friends on the other side of the fence, and we'll Every once in a blue moon, we'll, we'll put on some rebel gray and go ride with the first Maryland cavalry. Oh, Maryland. <laughs> That's uh, where our Iowa song came from, Maryland, my Maryland. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so you turn total turncoat. Okay. Well, and we're mercenary. Well, but the, the, <laughs> the thing of it is, is, you know, you'll show up to an event and there'll be uh, five guys on horseback on the rebel side and 20 guys on horseback on the on the union side, and you go, you know what? If we go with we'll ride with the people who don't who have fewer horses, we won't be bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have to be an important consideration. So, so, do you personally then represent a real person when you're reenacting? 
No, I do not. There are some units that do. Uh, the 24th Iowa Infantry, for example, is, is a very good example of that. Everyone who uh, is a reenactor in the 24th Iowa adopts a um, veteran of that unit that actually served a historical character. One of the most uh, notorious members of the 24th Iowa is uh, Dave Janacek, who portrays a real individual who lived named Josiah Munch. And um, I know they did a, a reenactment at Seminole Valley Farm just this last weekend, and so they had a there was an interview. I think it was on KGAN. There was an interview with uh, with Josiah Munns showing showing a day in the life of the 24th Iowa. But I myself don't don't actually do that. Well, so there's different choices you can make as a reenactor. There are. I tend to go for a more general. Um, I tend to go for a more general approach to living history. When you pick an actual character that's the, in, the, in the museum game, in the living history game, that's what we call first person. Um, I believe if you're going to do that, you need to do a lot of research and a lot of time into it to do it really well. And sometimes it's exceptionally hard to get um, the information that you need on a particular individual. Uh, my other thing is, because I am quite fl- frankly a woman rider, uh, riding his cavalry, there were, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm of two minds. I don't really believe in trying to portray a male soldier. There were women who in the Civil War did serve as soldiers and passed for men, but none of them, none of them we know of in the 1st Wisconsin. I think there was one in an Illinois regiment. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's just not something I've particularly devoted a lot of time to. Do you think that there's? Do you think there was more people doing that, or women doing that, back in the actual Civil War, or within the reenactor community? There are certainly more women doing that in the reenactor community than there were in the Civil War. But there is documented evidence that quite a few women did serve in the Civil War. One of the best books I can recommend um, on that particular topic of women who served as soldiers is a book, I cannot think, remember the author's name, but it's called All the Daring of the Soldier. And it it has several documented cases of women who, everything from women who enlisted and served as men, some in cases in the southern ranks, when the man would go off to war, the woman lost her home, she lost her way of living, and so really the only way she could survive was to follow her husband to war and in some places they didn't have women in the camps who weren't allowed to stay in the camp. So to stay with her husband, she had to try to pass for a man. And they had documented cases of that in the Confederate ranks. Um, in the Union, it was a little different. It went all the way from uh, what they called daughters of the regiment, who were women uh, who were uh, basically hosted or sponsored by an officer of the regiment, perhaps a surgeon, and they they accompanied the regiment, serving um, as nurses, uh, writing letters for the soldiers. I believe there was a woman who was, I want to say it was with the 5th Michigan Cavalry, uh, who was a daughter of the regiment. She, um, after one of the battles, she rode, I believe it was five miles behind enemy lines after dark on her side saddle and retrieved the body of, of their lieutenant from their from their command. Wow. Um, yeah, so the, so the, so it is documented. There were also uh, vivandiers. We have a lady in the Third Iowa Light Artillery who does a very good portrayal of a vivandier. Who were the women that they would help with the uh, artillery crews, and and so they might you know 
sort of a, they they sometimes you know filled in on the guns when when people were when when they were short men and they helped you know assisted the men with you know camp duties and things like that. And okay. then you had women spies too, so you had you had the whole gamut, a little bit of everything. So I have seen you in your outfit, and you have quite a lot of specialized equipment to turn yourself into a Union soldier of the 1860s. Where do you get that equipment? I mean, it's not oh, something it's, you normally get. It's pretty readily available online. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, specialized vendors called sutlers, um, people who make or trade in um, period camp equipment. So you can buy reproduction Civil War canteens, and you can buy reproduction saddles. The, the most um, difficult equipment to get in some cases, or rather the most expensive equipment to get, um, are usually the weaponry, the, the long arms, the, the rifles, the proper, the proper rifles, or the um, proper uh, horse equipment. Um, because that requires a saddle maker, and there are maybe three saddle makers I know of in the country who do really good Civil War saddle equipments. Um, a lot of people who do leather work can make period Civil War um, belts and carbine slings and, and scabbards and all of those things, but not many skilled saddle makers exist for, for the horse equipment. The weaponry is also um, a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge because it's quite easy to obtain the uh, Civil War era black powder pistols, the Colt armies, the Colt navies, you can buy them in Cabela's, you know, in the hunting catalogs. Mm -hmm. um, obtaining historically correct replica long arms. We use, in the cavalry, we use Sharps carbines. Um, there are also Smith carbines and um, Enfield rifles, things like this. In some cases, it can be so difficult to find a replica weapon that some people actually use original Civil War era uh, weapons, but it's it's um, it's a bit of a challenge to find to find the correct weaponry, and that, well, that I would say is the biggest expense. Uniforms people can make it. You know, we've got patterns. We can find the right fabrics and things of the like. So, would you say it's it's an expensive hobby as far as investing in, in the equipment to get started? Yes, especially depending on what you're doing. Probably the most cost-effective route to go is to do infantry or to do a uh, civilian impression. Um, the most expensive is probably the cavalry because you have the cost of, in, in, individually to the person. Uh, the most expensive on an individual individual basis would be cavalry. As a unit, um, right, right in behind it would be the artillery. Um, Artillery pieces are very, very tricky to come by because you've, in some cases, um, replica replica artillery pieces you have to be careful of because you are putting real gunpowder down those barrels. And if you don't have a properly formed um, barrel or artillery piece that you're firing off, it can blow up on you. Mm -hmm. um, in, in some cases, they're using originals that have been purchased, the antique original cannon. Um, and so, even then, you have to watch them because you're you're firing original weapons. The other expensive part of an artillery piece is the limber and the uh, the limber box and the gun carriage. Um, I know you can a, a unit can spend thousands upon thousands of dollars, upwards of ten thousand dollars, I would estimate, for a proper 
uh, limber box and gun carriage with the the heavy duty wheels and all of that. It's it's that, but they usually also have a that's usually a cost that's shared by all the members of the unit in some way. Um, the horses in the cavalry are probably the most expensive individual thing because each individual reenactor has to outfit himself or herself with the with the uniform and the equipment and the weapons, and then you have to have a horse, you know, um, and horses you maintain all year round, not just when you're having fun. Um, and then you have to also buy the proper equipment for the horse, so you have to have the saddles and the tack and the bridles. I would say when I started this hobby 15, 16 years ago, I probably had about $1,000 invested in my um, in my equipment, all of my equipment for both me and the horse. Today, that saddle and the horse equipment alone, just, just the tack for the horse is $1,000 to outfit. So you're probably looking at $2,000 um, per person. Um, so yeah, there's, there is significant cost. It's not a it's not a, a hobby you enter lightly or or and once you get into it, it's not one you get out of easily either because you do have significant investment. In it. Yes, I could definitely see that. So when you go to events, do you act out real battles or do you just make them up? It depends on the event. Um, there are events like Basketball, Wisconsin, where every year they will pick a reenactment of a different Civil War battle that actually happened. Uh, one year it was Wilson's Creek. One year they will do uh, Gettysburg. One year they'll do, you know, it just, it, Shiloh, whatever. It, it just depends on what the theme is for the year. And then there are other places that you may go. I, I know we were this way at Usher's Ferry because the ground at Usher's Ferry is is um, very difficult to work with. We would just do a battle that's just kind of made up that really just is an example or a demonstration of how the armies would work, you know, both, you know, the different the different branches of the army, the cavalry, the artillery, and the infantry would work together on the field and, and the things that might happen. So they don't, it, it, it goes both ways, depending on what you're doing and what, where the event is held. So is there a set schedule of annual events you kind of cycle through, or does someone just say, let's have a battle next year? It's a little bit of both. Um, there are annual events that have been held for years and years and years. Probably the oldest one that I know of in the state of Iowa is Keokuk, which is always like the third weekend of April. Um, Usher's Ferry had a battle for many years. It was in September, and now it's at Seminole Valley Farmstead. So that's usually the second weekend of July. Um, I'm trying to think. There's uh, there's others in Iowa. I don't go to many of them in Iowa. Sometimes we'll go to timeline events. I believe there's one at Charles City that has a mixture. There's Civil War and World War One and and World War Two and, and a variety of things. Um, Basketball, Wisconsin, is a very big one in the tri-state area, and that's uh, that's actually coming up. That will be the first weekend of August. Um, and then there are events, you know, periodically people call up and say, hey, we are going to do an event at Nashua next year. And they'll call you out of the blue, and people will show up and they'll go, and if it's a good event and they want to do it again, then they'll do it again. And and maybe it'll run for a year or two or three or five or ten. Um, maybe they do it once and decide it's too much work and they don't do it again. So it kind of it, it's just kind of word of mouth through the reenactor community. So uh, if a, a civilian, a non-reenactor, wants to attend a battle, can they do that? 
Oh, yeah. There's, um, like I said, it's actually if you just get on the Internet and look for Civil War reenactments in Iowa and just do a search, you'll find all sorts of events. They'll have public information. You can tour the camps. You can watch the battle. You can uh, you go visit the settlers and buy old-fashioned Civil War stuff and see a variety of different demonstrations and drills. And, yeah, that's absolutely easy to do. Some events will charge. Some events will not have an admission fee. It just kind of depends on the event. So um, as a rule, if you come in, you get to tour the camp. You get to see a battle, hopefully, that's at some point during the day. Um, And as its first person, you get to have conversations with people as if they were in the past. Correct? Yes. On on occasion, you can do that. They'll... they'll, uh... Oh, depending on the event, sometimes they'll have President Lincoln, you know, and, and Mary Todd Lincoln wandering around and giving speeches. Um, usually they'll have, um, sometimes they'll have a ball. Keokuk, the big the big event used to be to have the ball on Saturday night, and both the public could pay to attend that and dress up and learn to dance, or the reenactors as well. They do period dancing. Um, there's musicians. There's um, just a variety of activities. Some events will have a ladies' tea and they'll, or fashion show, and you can go and, and see the different types of fashions and clothing that they wore and, and just a variety of programs like that. So if somebody was going to come to attend one of these sites as a visitor, are, are they generally set up so, it, so that they can just come and stay all day, that there's places to eat and places to go to the bathroom, sure. plenty of room to park? Yeah, there usually are. Most of these are hosted in city parks or county parks, um, so there's bathroom facilities. They'll have a mixture. Sometimes they'll have period food vendors, and they'll have, you know, just regular concession stand food vendors. So there's there's food. Um, the general rule of thumb is, depending on the event, you know, you may not want to stay overnight, but you may not be able to get a hotel room. Some of these things book up with, with all sorts of Especially if you get a monstrous rainstorm and the camps are rained out, you'll have every reenactor in the in the world into a hotel trying to keep all their gear dry. But um, yeah, you can you can usually find enough to spend the day and and uh, entertain yourself. And I would say you can you can easily kill two three four hours in an event if you really if you really want to. And you've never been to one before. So um, this year. Is this well? Last year we had the Abraham Lincoln uh, celebration, and this year is the start of the anniversary of the Civil War. Have you seen that that's caused any increase in interest? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say. I would have to say, in general, there's just been a, a tiny bit, but not as much as people would expect. There may be a little more media focus on Civil War reenacting than there's been in years past, and that's purely because of the 150th anniversary uh, celebrations beginning. But it really hasn't, I wouldn't say there's been a huge upswing in Civil War event attendance and public interest. Um, and, and part of this is the Civil War reenacting really has been around a while. I mean, it's it's been around in some cases as early as the 1970s and really was going very strong in the 1990s. So it's been around enough that most people have seen one, you know, and it's, it's not really anything new. Um, I would say the other thing is you've kind of got to look at, at the entertainment industry in some fashion. And 
I've noticed people's interest takes cues from what's playing in the movie theaters. Um, right now, as far as I know, we've really only had one movie out this year about the Civil War, and that was the uh, was it the, the conspirator about the Lincoln assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 90s, when we were hitting the 135th, 140th anniversary, there was a string of Civil War movies. We had Gettysburg. We had Glory. We had um, just just it seemed like movie after movie there's um all of that era and so people were kind of used to seeing it in the theater and then they wanted to come out and see it in the public venue and so there was a real strong interest in civil war history we may see that in the next year or two or three as is the advert more 150th anniversaries come up but i have not seen i have not seen a real strong upswing um yet well, we've got uh, what three more years after this one, so yes, we've got three more years. So maybe maybe it'll pick up a bit. So, um, is there if somebody wants to become a Civil War reenactor, what would you say would be their first step? That they have been thinking about it for a while, and and they're maybe maybe not totally ready to make the commitment, but want to start really seriously finding out what it's about? Well, really the best thing is to just go to an event or two or three and start visiting with the reenactors. The, the most important thing about reenacting is is falling in with the right group of people, the right group of personalities that um, you fit with, that you enjoy talking to, and that you want to frankly spend a weekend camping with. And, it, you know, there, it it runs the gamut from Confederate to Union, from uh, family camping to what we call hardcore reenactors who want to do everything just exactly as they did it, you know, in 1860. So if you want to go Civil War reenacting and you want to bring your wife and your kids with you and make it a family experience, you probably don't want to be a hardcore campaigner and sleeping out on the ground. Um, they're not going to get to participate in the event that much with you. If you want to make it a family experience, you might want to look for a more family-oriented unit. But by the same token, if you are a single person or an individual who just wants to get out of the house and away from the wife and the kids for a weekend and really go live that experience like they did in the 1860s, you might want to explore a hardcore campaign unit where the guys sleep out on the ground with no tents and carry nothing in their pockets that they wouldn't have had in 1863. Um and, and like I say, it runs the gamut. The most important thing is finding people that you really enjoy talking to and spending time with because you're going to be spending a lot of time with them through, throughout the season and the years. So would you say as a whole the, the Civil War reenactor community is open to, to new people coming in? Oh, yeah, always, always. They they love to have new people coming in. Um and they'll probably evaluate you as much as you evaluate them because, you know, when, when you've got a nice, you tend to have these groups tend to become pretty closely knit over the years. And so, you know, they they, uh, they size people up and come in, coming in and say, well, is this personality going to be a good fit with us? Yeah, we think they are. Eh, maybe they want to go try this other unit up here. Um, it, it, it definitely is a, um, it definitely is a, a fairly, um, closely knit community of, of of friends and individuals. 
Well, we've got just about two minutes left, and there's just one other thing I thought it might be fun to touch on a little bit. Uh, as reenactors, you a lot of times are camping on the actual battlegrounds and, and some of the bigger events. Do you ever have any um, run-ins with the paranormal? Oh, no, I, I have not. Um, the, we, actually, most national battlefield parks will not have or allow reenactments on the national battlefield park. But you might, but they'll let them happen off-site or adjacent to the park, which still generally saw action in the Civil War, saw action in the battle. It's just not owned by the U.S. government. Um, so at Gettysburg, for example, we when we did the 135th Gettysburg, we were not actually having the event on Gettysburg National Battlefield. The government wouldn't allow that, but we were camping on farms adjacent to it. Um, I haven't myself had any spooky experiences, but there is a certain feeling you get from standing on the ground where this happened. You get a whole new respect for history. Uh, I heard a lot of great stories uh, from friends who were filming the Gettysburg movie in the 90s um, of, you know, night ba you know battles that they thought people were filming that, you know, they, they said, no, 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 nobody was out there filming. We don't know what you're talking about. But people thought they'd seen something, um, had a friend who had a soldier carry his, his bag of ice up for him and turned around and the guy was gone and he thinks it's a ghost, you know. So I don't know. I myself have never had that experience, but you do get a you do get a certain feeling when you're standing there on the ground. It gives you a new respect for it. Okay, well, we're, we're about out of time, so that'll have to round it up for today. Thank you again so much, Anne. I'm sure everybody enjoyed learning about it. And it's something, you know, you hear, hear talked about on TV a lot, and you sometimes see the footage, but it's something that I think a lot of people haven't really had first-hand experience with. So I really appreciate you coming on. All right, no problem. All right, thank you, Anne. Bye. Thanks. Bye. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.